Lord have mercy, ladies and gentlemen, season three of Chewing the Gristle with yours truly, Gregory Stephen Cock Esquire, is at hand. We got a bunch of great guests lined up once again. We'll be talking some guitar. I'm sure we'll talk about food. I'm sure we'll talk about hilarity. That's just what's going to happen. So thanks for tuning in. Let's get into it. Brought to you by our good friends at Wildwood Guitars in beautiful Louisville, Colorado, and Fishman Transducers of beautiful Andover, Massachusetts. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, this week on Chewing the Gristle, a fantastic musician, guitar player, human being. My buddy Jeff Coleman, you've seen him with everybody from Glenn Hughes, Alan Parsons Project, to fronting his own glorious ensemble called Cosmo Squad. This week, ladies and gentlemen, Jeff Coleman. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, yet another installment in the podcast... Of all podcasts, well, that's kind of bold talk. It's at least a podcast. Listen, Gregory Cockery here, Chewing the Gristle is where you're at. I'm here with a majestic musician, guitarist, buddy of mine, Jeff Coleman, ladies and gentlemen. You've seen him with currently the Alan Parsons Project. You've seen him with Glenn Hughes. You've seen him with a million different people. I met him years ago. Uh, when he was doing Fender stuff uh, around the same time that I was doing some Fender stuff and just a majestic axman, a glorious tone smith and doggone it, a good buddy. How the heck are you, Jeffrey? I'm good. You know, like you, I live in the Midwest now part time. So I do things like yard work and <laughs> I'm yes. all tired from yesterday's yard work. But it keeps us grounded, I guess, is the is the uh, is the is at least that's the story we're going with. That's the story we're going with, Jeffrey. George liked to do yard work and you know planting and whatnot. So if it's good enough for George Harrison, damn it! <laughs> but, but I'm sore today. We just finished our little tour there, Alan, and uh, you know domestic life. It's like a switch. You get home, and then you're in it. Now you're originally from uh, Toledo area. Am I correct? That's where your hometown. That's right. It's like when Detroit takes a crap, uh, all, when Detroit takes a shit, it lands down south. <laughs> Toledo's Detroit with less options. I, I, it's interesting that it's, uh, I didn't know that the official or kind of unofficial recognition of Toledo was, uh, it was the scat of Detroit, but I like that. <laughs> We had some good things, you know, uh, Art Tatum is originally from Toledo, the great yes. pianist, Tom Schultz from Boston, uh, and what's his name from MASH, uh, his name is escaping right now. Jamie Farr. Jamie Farr. And there you, you know, go. Now, now you've got Reverend Guitars there. Great place to grow up. We had a lot of good concerts that came through. Toledo's a good hub between Cleveland and Detroit and Chicago to see shows, so... Yeah, I, I could dig it. Now it is called the uh, city of is it city of lights or city of glass? Glass city, it's called, right? Glass, glass. Yeah, yeah. And why you're is playing that in there the, soon? I think I am. I'm playing in Maumee, which apparently is yeah, a suburb right? right there. Now, are you close by there now or not anymore? Uh about three hours away. I'm oh. closer to you now. That's a haul. I'm near the Indiana Dunes Park, so yeah, it's a. Uh, it's nice. It, it feels kind of like the ocean. 
as you know. It certainly does. Uh, my buddy uh, Rick Vito was in town here. We did some gigs a couple of years back, and he had lived in in Maui for years. And we we had a day off, and it was a beautiful summer day. And we took a little stroll down by the lake. He's like, "Listen, I lived in Maui, and this is every bit as beautiful as some of the areas I saw in Maui." I was like, "Yeah, but th- the water's way more cold." <laughs> yeah. Well, you know what's interesting, Jeff, is that you mentioned you mentioned Art Tatum, and I and. Uh, Every now and again, you'll whip out the jazz box and play some stuff online, and you just have a, a great touch for for jazz, which is not always the case with you know people who are more associated with with rock. But you studied quite a bit back in the day with with a jazz with a jazz instructor. Am I right? Yeah. There's a cat. Well, it started with this guy Dan Fanley, who is guitarist for Diane Krall, and uh, he has a band Pink Martini that's well known. And he's very much like a Pat Martino guitar player. And he gave me a few lessons, but, you know, he's kind of one of those teachers that gets irritable right away. But got a bunch of Coke cans, empty Coke cans. He'll play a couple of bebop licks and, you know, one, six, two, five, ones. The next thing you know, he's like, okay, you need to go to my teacher. He'd just get frustrated. And so uh, I studied mainly with Gene Parker, who played everything but guitar, which was glorious. So... Uh, he played sax, um, great harmony on piano, flute, you name it, vibes. And uh, we really studied the hist- history of jazz of the 20th century, you know. So I think my first lesson, he played me Art Tatum just to kind of end my ego if I had one. And, um, you know, just kick my ass. He would literally kick my ass every week. <laughs> just pump me with stuff that guitar players can't do, you know. Now, how how um, how competent were you as a guitar player when when you began this this weekly pummeling? I was kind of like a poor man's Jason Becker. <laughs> you know, I could and I understood rock, and I I, I studied classical guitar prior to that uh, a bit. So, you know, I had all the the rock shit together, but like just really knowing. Uh, things inside out in keys that guitar players, you know, E flat, A flat, F and, you know, substitutions and all this kind of stuff. And he would get out, you know, uh, cards. It was a great technique, put down every key. And then, you know, obviously you play stuff in a cycle of force, but then he would just throw the cards down randomly. So it'd be C, A flat, F, B flat, whatever. Put the metronome on and go, okay, we're going to start from the flat seven around down each one. Here we go, 16th. You're like, holy shit, you know, switching keys with every every bar. So that was a great, uh, great uh, thing to work on with him. And we'd study real book stuff, new real book, the Brazilian real book. He'd teach me about space with guys like Chet Baker, um, you know, guys that played very vertically like uh, – you know, Cole Train and Cannonbarely and these kind of cats. So it was great. It studied the voicings of Bill Evan. Now, how long of a tutelage did you have with this guy? You know, it's hard to go back and remember. I mean, I probably studied with him about a year and a half, which is a long time, really, if you go there like every week. Absolutely. He's the kind of cat that I'd like to just go to Toledo and take a lesson from him every so often. We'd all learn something from him. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, you know, in terms of standards, would would you learn like a different standard every week? Are you a guy that knows 
like a bunch of standards or was it more just the concept of being able to play over changes and that kind of a thing? It was a little bit of both. We would take, we would spend some time on one tune and he would talk about, you know, oh, we could do these changes. Ah, these changes that are in the real book are just stock. Let's do this and this, you know. And uh, let's say the melody was on the, there's a G chord and a melody in G. He's like, okay, we got to revoice that chord right away because that square is shit, you know. Right. So, I, you know, the thing is, is <clears throat> sitting around playing standards isn't really my uh, interest. I'm always just interested in writing songs. So I always used jazz and classical uh, lessons to somehow give a little flavor to my writing and just allow you to be more free, understand things harmonically. Right. If I sat down with Mike Stern and tried to play standards for an hour, it'd be horrible. <laughs> he would be great. I understand. I understand. <laughs> it's just not my interest, you know? Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I, I, you know, I went to school for music and, and it was, uh, you know, the degree was apparently in jazz guitar, but I, I just wanted to know how to play over changes and, uh, and be able to, you know, write and read music at some kind of a professional level. And, and all of that stuff more or less happened. I, you know, what's interesting is that I, when I hear from, you know, the thing you just described and other friends that I knew had more of a kind of a, uh, had experiences with more draconian teachers that were like, it's got to be like this and you got to practice it. And my guys were always just like, yeah, do whatever. And I was always way harder on myself than my teachers were. And I don't know, it, it was just how I ended up. But, you know, I used to hear people who used to study at various different places. And it was just like you described, like, okay, well, now it's this. And, you know, let's go. Here are these cards. Or it would be like the random thing where they'd go around the class and say, okay, A minor seven flat five. You just had to rattle off the notes in it. And I never had any of that, which I don't know was if it was good or bad. But, <laughs> but it's certainly, you know, that level of knowledge obviously is, is great when it just becomes, you know, just so embedded in your brain that you don't have to think about it. That's which is basically the point. Right. And there's some cats later, Gary Bergonzi, who he's got great teaching, me teaching methods and, you know, different uh, just cycles that are interesting to play over. And so I'll put that stuff out every so often just to keep my brain, you know, going. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about your, you're in Toledo, you're gigging around, you're doing your thing. At what point do you head on out to California? Well, I had a band. Uh, we had a band and we tried real hard. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Edwin had a metal band. And uh, we toured with a bunch of acts and, you know, did like one-off shows with pretty much, you know, everybody back then. Like your kind of Warrant, Cinderella, Skid Row, Dio, all these different people. And we had licensing deals overseas. and But <sighs> Grunge came out and kind of changed the whole playing field even the bands that were famous like iron maiden you know the singer left and judas priest rob halford left everybody just like was kind of like COVID. we were all unemployed <laughs> they were into a different thing musically the whole platform changed and even the clubs that we had built up playing uh kind of closed down and it was it was time for a change because it was getting kind of silly so it was a difficult decision to make but i think uh and I stayed longer in Toledo than I wanted to because, you know, my brother was in the band and we, I'm still proud of the music. It's one of the best bands I've ever been in. Um, so I left, I think, in 95 and moved west. I just wanted to be a freelance musician and, you know, see what 
what can happen, you know, get into studio work, try to get gigs with, you know, cut line, get gigs with bigger artists. <laughs> right, right. So I found myself, you know, interestingly enough, I moved to Phoenix first because I had some family there, got an apartment. I started doing sessions at two or three of the studios there. I basically started knocking on their doors. You know, I had like the session guitars book with Michael Thompson talking about how to do things. And, you know, I was naive, but I got to read. Um, and I started getting some sessions in Phoenix. I worked for, with Linda McCartney and Lyle Lovett and Patti LaBelle and, you know, some different and Matt Rawlings as Nashville's session cat. And, and that kind of got my feet wet. And that Shane Gellis, we formed the band Cosmo Squad. This all happened within six months of moving to Phoenix. And then he's like, dude, you need to be in LA. And I think at the time he was playing with Michael Shanker. And so we ended up renting a house in California, building a studio, never telling the homeowner that we built a studio in the garage. Next thing I know, I have like guys like Glenn Hughes from Deep Purple, Phil Mogg from UFO, Billy Sheehan come by the house. We were a one-stop shop. You know, we could play the guitar. He's Shane's one of the great drummers and mix it and send it out. So, you know, all out of the workshop of the garage. <laughs> That's kind of how it all started, you know. And so where where was that house about in the in the LA area? That Granada Hills. And then I ended up buying a house like five years later, uh, an eighth of a mile away, which I still have. And I go back and forth. So that's the north end of the San Fernando Valley. Nice. So the, so the L.A. thing worked out great. You just worked your ass off and, and did what needed to be done. And things just kind of lined up. Yeah. Man, but uh, it's not forever. You have to have thick skin. And, and I don't know. If I had to do it now, I... I it's tough. I mean, I talked to, I remember talking to Shane, he goes, you know, what kind of like the, the very tail end of an era that was um, plentiful musically. Right. You know, even with doing sessions, I mean, it started drying up even then, but there was the whole like K-Rock scene, Jay Bumgarner, all these producers. Um, and I would work out at NRG studios a bit and do some things and, and uh, film and TV stuff and movie trailers and, a little bit of everything. There's a couple cats that are actually still doing, you know, session work. Josh Gooch is doing some, a bit of work, and right, uh, which is good. It's you know, it's tougher out there. I'm friends with Michael Landau, and he he's like, yeah, I got to go out and tour with him because it's that shit's dried up. Right. Um, I remember going from Toledo doing a trip to L.A. It was a benefit for Jason Becker, and I think I went to like Mates or one of these. It was it was uh, Andy Brower's place, and he has the Cartage Company. So it's a big warehouse and I look in and it's like, okay, there's like 27 guitar cases. This is my Thompson. Then there's another 20. This is Tim Pierce. Right. This is another 15. It's Michael Landau. It's like, wow. You know, then stacks of amps. And they were working so much. They would just cart all the shit to the studios and do three sessions a day, you know? Right. So that was quite an era. Indeed. Although, you know, I think, I think, you know, there's always, there's a reoccurring era. It's just that, you know, maybe gets condensed and then they're always looking for, you know, the young guy and the young guy gets hooked up with the young producers and yada, yada, yada. Who knows? Yeah. You know, but, cause I was talking, yeah, I was talking definitely. with Fred, I was talking with Fred Tackett the other day and he was going, I, I was sorry. It was just when I was talking to Fred Tackett the other day, he's like, you know, I did my, my sessions and you know, all the, most of my sessions were done in 74 and 75 and, 
And, you know, most of the stuff kind of dried up after. <laughs> so I think for everyone, it's like, it's like a different point, you know what I mean? Where it's like, yeah, it started to dry up. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the Motown guys, right? Well, one day they went to work and it said closed. <laughs> we moved to right. LA. <laughs> Even Jamerson's out of a gig. When did you start to pivot to more of the road stuff? Or was that always part of what you did? You know, uh, it was always a part of what I did. But I tried to be around, you know, I have two daughters, and I tried to be around a bit more for them when they were little. Right. Uh, so I, leading up to that, I got married in 2003. You know, we started having kids in t- 2005. So I figured I needed to get some mailbox money going so I didn't have to just be on the road all the time. And so I hooked up with a buddy and who was doing really uh, quite a bit of work in film and TV and movie trailers and this sort of stuff. So I would just get together with him as much as I could whenever I was in town and, uh, just build up that residual income. Library. Yeah. So I didn't have to take every gig that comes, you know, and it helps. It even still helps. It got me through COVID, you know, thank God. Mailbox money is good. So I had my own trio and I would go out and, you know, I had some vocal records that I did. That's tricky too, because I was kind of no, more of an instrumental guitar player and people like, Oh, you're singing. I, I guess I like your voice, but I like your instrumental music. Right. So, but I would go out and tour Europe and Germany and well, you know, that whole gig, you're a sprinter, you're roughing it out in clubs. Yep. Absolutely. It was more glorious being the sideman for other people. (laughs) But, you know, as I was never a sideman per se, where, you know, like a Christian Aguilera or Britney Spears, we just stand on stage or Jennifer Lopez. It was always something that I had a vested interest in. Like, let's say Glenn Hughes, I produced Glenn in 2001 or two and co-wrote songs with him and we would play those songs live. So yeah, we, we, I got to, you know, ride the coattails of old Deep Purple songs and enjoy that, but I still had a vested interest in it. And even with Alan Parsons, we have, you know, a record that we did in 2017 and then new one that's coming out in July. So there's a vested interest in it. And um, it's not just like, you know, stand up there like you're a Grammy guitar player, you know? Right. I understand. Yeah, 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 yeah. So talk about your gear over the years. You've always been kind of a, a stratsman with the, with the humbucker and back with a, with a couple of single coils or, you know, what, what was kind of been the progression you know, of. Yeah. So back in the day, I mean, I definitely was into Eddie Van Halen and Randy Rhodes and the, uh, my sound had changed. I had a sound back then, and you know anybody, any of the listeners, they can look up the band Edwin Dare, or my first couple solo instrumental records. And I started pretty young with all of it. Um, but my sound was more about um, EMGs and hitting that front end of the amp hard because the amp couldn't get that much gain out of it. So I would use like a micro amp and a MXR compressor and different things to hit the front end of the Marshall to try to get more saturation because we're all trying to get that, you know, a little bit more of a Randy Rose, Eddie Van Halen tone. And I, I had my own sound back then, which was cool, but you know, those kind of pickups are, it's pretty generic when you go over to your clean sound. So I would have like a Roland jazz course and it was just like, Hmm, this isn't, and I'd start listening to Steve Ray Vaughan go, man, I just don't have that sound. <laughs> <laughs> so when I moved West, uh, funny story is George, Lynch had an of studio and it said Bogner on it, but it was an old Marshall modified by Reinhold. 
And I, there was something between George and the studio. I don't know if he had an outstanding debt, maybe. <laughs> but I ended up buying it off of somebody and uh, there at the studio. And uh, I've had it ever since. But it changed my whole approach because it needed low-output pickups. And I started realizing that the tone is in the wood. Find the right guitar that's resonant. Low-output pickups. You know, And I totally changed my recipe from like 1995 on. So that's when I got into strats and, you know, finding Les Pauls with, you know, nothing over 8K on the resistance. Right. Somebody sent me a Doug Aldrich pickup. I put in my Les Paul. I'm like, this is horrific. I mean, it works good for him, but, you know, it's like 14K. On the, it's just too right. much. Right, right, right. I understand. I want it to sound good whether I plug a Les Paul into a Fender or a Marshall. I, I need to be able to go clean. And it just sounds glorious, you know. And when you find right pickup, it's almost Telly esque on a Les Paul, right? In the middle position, if the pickups in the wood is right. So right, absolutely. So over the years, have you um, have you absconded with some some vintage things, or have have you not fallen a prey to the to the bug of of gear hoarding in that regard? You know what? I always keep my collection to about fifty guitars because I just there's times where you buy more and you're like more versus just more, you know, like 10 Marshall heads. I'm going to go out. I'm going to use these three. Um, but uh, yeah, I always keep it to around 50. I think somewhere around like 2015, I had a tour cancel and I had a, uh, a 61 chat that I sold to uh, an investor buddy uh, in Luxembourg. You probably sold some guitars to the same gentleman. Uh, but you know, it was quite a handsome profit, and because uh, I kind of felt like, well, the two struts I have kind of do what that one does as well. So you know, the vintage game is is it's it's tricky because uh, you can make a lot of money selling that shit, <laughs> yeah. right? And there, there's there's a minutiae uh, aspect of it that I. I was just going to say, like, people are really into, well, it doesn't have these screws or this bridge thing isn't right. It's like, I, you know what? I, I like to just go, is it the old one or not? Is, okay, if it's not, it works. You know, I've, but in order to not really get taken in that game, it's like, you got to know the minutiae. And I, I just don't, and I don't want to. So if I have to really trust the person and then, okay, well, this all seems square for what it is and just kind of go from there. But yeah, I'm, I'm not into playing games with all the, the minutiae. No, no, it's too much work. And and you're right. You have to be like a historian. I mean, sometimes when I'm buying stuff, I call certain friends. Um, I have a mutual friend that's Vera uh, Johnson that really knows tone and speaker dates and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, we all have a few friends like that. You can call and go, hey, man, uh, you know, is this the 68 cab? Are these the right speakers? You right. Know? A good reference. And reference person. really overworked with tone as well is the cabinet has so much to do with tone and the what that you're getting you know uh and i love the old old marshall cabs like you know around the 60 era with the old uh 25 watt greenbacks just sounds glorious amazing so these are little things that you you have the epiphanies like you know buddy brings over an old cabin like whoa it just got that much closer to malcolm young where i couldn't achieve that before you know isn't it crazy that that stuff back then of the you know in that era let's let's just say like 68 you know you had cream 
You know, you had, of course, the Beatles, you had Hendrix, you had, uh, or 69, you know, they're talking about Zeppelin and, and Allman Brothers and, and all these types of cats. And you're realizing that to them, it was just new gear. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, what, what gear is available? Oh, so-and-so is using this stuff. And then you realize that that was the best shit there was ever going to be. <laughs> Those were the spokes of the wheel, you know, of old 30, you know, it's like they had it all figured out. If you're a jazz guy, you go get an L5 or, you know, it's like freaking incredible. Right. And, you know, I'm sure you've played, uh, you know, original 59 basement and compared it to the reissue basement. It's like Hyundai versus Ferrari. There's no, exactly. there's no comparison. No, no, indeed not. I always it's get crazy. frustrated. I mean, I think Fender as a company is building incredible guitars in the custom shop. And it's not necessary to go get an old Fender but some of the amps fall short you know it's like you make a reissue of a twin it's like man it'd be great if it was like the 66 twin truly right right and they're good not like they were you know yeah and it's Maybe interesting because you wonder how much of it is is just that it has to age you know all those components and what they used exactly have to age to the point where, cause you know, like it, I mean, to your point, you, you play an old blackface super or a twin or something like that. And it's bright, but it's a warm, it's a warmer bright. Whereas the new ones, man, you, you can't go anywhere near that bright switch with any kind of gain or you're impaling people with shards of glass. <laughs> right. I remember you, we were doing a gig. I don't know if we were doing a gig together or if you just came up to my sound check, but you saw my settings on my 20s. So, dude, that's almost exactly how I set mine. <laughs> so, yeah, there you go. I mean, great, uh, great minds think alike, or at least disturbed minds right. think alike. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, kids, kids these days, they're always, uh, I think, you know, there's so much equipment out there, and they, a lot of them don't have the knowledge and the understanding of what the old amps have. And I would, you know, try to instill that in certain players that, man, I'm always talking to guys like Doug Rappaport because we have, we do a gig in Japan together, and he's just a fantastic guitar player, right? Absolutely. These guys got so much soul, and it all just comes natural. He says he has no idea what he's doing, but, of course, his ears are big. And and uh, so we're always talking about gear, and you know, he's got his rig on stage, and he's searching for sound, and I have my sound. So I'm, not like I'm enlightening him, but we have conversations about gear. He reached out recently about the idea of using, you know, like a um, – what they call that Kemper or a line six helix or something like that. And I think a lot of younger kids, you know, for the convenience, maybe they're in an apartment, they can't play loud in the house. You just plug right into your computer. Easy. Uh, so I gave him my advice. And recently I saw a post. He goes, yeah, nothing beats an amp in a cabinet <laughs> moving air. I mean, it's true. I mean, I get the, I get the convenience of all that stuff, especially if you're if you're really technically oriented. I mean, you could have, you know, all the changes and stuff programmed in, you know, it's, you know, all the channel sounds and effect changes and all that locked up to a grid. And if you're playing some kind of a gig where it's the same every night, I mean, I get all of that. Uh, but for, you know, all of those things that we wanted to play guitar for and, and you know, why we took all this time and effort to... Uh, <laughs> to get this particular skill set and so on and so forth to, to kind of, I mean, and again, I, I understand it, but clearly moving air is the thing. Yeah. 
And I'll never forget we were doing this. You you met my, you know my buddy Willie Porter, right? Great acoustic guitar player. Yeah, yeah. And I remember um, doing some gigs with him back in the day. And um, he's like, "Why don't you come on tour with us? We're opening up for Tori Amos for these these particular gigs." I'm like, "Great." And uh, I remember I brought three amps. I brought a Pro Junior, a uh, a um, a Blues Deluxe, and a Blues Deville. Right? Because I thought, you know, Papa Bear, Mama Bear, Baby. <laughs> Because <laughs> I didn't, you know, we're the open, we're the opening band. I didn't know what they were going to allow us on stage or any of that kind of shit. And so we got to the gig, and uh, I ended up using the Pro Junior, and and almost that was too loud for the end. They literally wanted no sound emanating from the stage, and <laughs> and I'll never forget. And I remember seeing all the placards everywhere, like you know, for for um, you know, catering this way and stage, and and everything was so corporatized to me you know it's like i i just need greasy low down and dirty cranking up and go you know what i mean this this corporate you know approach to you know quantifying music is you know i mean, i get it i understand it obviously people are making a, a lot of sweet scalota and god bless them but for me it was a very eye-opening experience you know and then um, the what the, the guitar Tori, player the look on tori amo's face when uh you hit that seven sharp nine chord <laughs> <laughs> I'll never forget. I, I'll never forget when Willie Willie introduced me to her. She goes, he goes, hey Tori, this is this is my guitar player Greg, and she looks at me. She goes, oh Groovy Tuesday. I'm like, indeed, and that's all I could say. I was like, what do you what do you say to that Groovy Tuesday? And uh, she was great, and you know, it was all it was all well and good, but uh, it was just one of those eye opening things. You're a youngster trying to figure it all out, and. Uh, and the guitar, her guitar player had an AC30 that was underneath the stage, like baffled every which way from Tuesday, so there would be no, no noise on stage. And it's like, oh, okay. I mean, I get it, but talk wow. about talk about an amp that you can't play quiet, you know? Right, exactly. I think she falls out. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly correct. Crazy, crazy really activity. He's a great player. He is. I love he is, and he's, a, and he's a neighbor. And so we've we've known each other for a long, long time, and it was kind of funny because both of our daughters went to the same high school, and they were in theater together, and they had this great one of the productions. They had this great uh, duet that they did together, which is pretty cool. It's kind of kind of wild, you know what I mean? And but yes, he's doing good. He's off to uh, to England, I guess, in a in a couple of weeks. He's going over to do that. We we share the same uh, manager, um, and, but plus he lives close, and we get together and cause trouble as as you do. But uh, but he was another one of our you know kind of ex Fender slash Guild compatriots from back in the day. But that was a, that was a good run back then. It was we had a lot of fun. There was some there was some uh, good Nam shows where there was uh, you know really some opportunities to play in kind of a legit venue. And you had Cosmo Squad. And you guys tore it up, and I'd play with you know either my band or some kind of aggregation and so on and so forth. And those are some good times. Of course, that was a while ago now. Yeah, I remember doing a NAM where they were unveiling the Eddie Van Halen Frankenstein, right? right. And we all played that night. Yeah, he showed up. I think he was a little inebriated. I remember. And John that. Dreyer said, "Hey, if Eddie, if Eddie wants to jam with you guys, are you down for that?" We're like, we've been waiting for this moment all our lives, right? We know all the Van Halen right. tunes. And, uh, of course, that never happened. He kind of, whoa, what the hell's that? That's all right. And uh, I remember you played that night, and it was with uh, Niels Lofgren. Yes, 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 yes. And that was a that was a cool sight. You're like what six foot seven? He's probably right, right. <laughs> like five no. foot. I mean, 
<laughs> I remember looking at that stage going, that's amazing. But sweetheart and great player, you know. Yeah, Nils and, is a uh, really, yeah, really a good dude. Tender. You know, funny story. Year, years later, I was, um, you know, I'd go over to Australia and do some stuff with Fender Australia. I'd go over there every year and do like this. They put together this band. Me and this other guitar player that was from uh, Australia, and we put this band together, and we would do these roadshow things. And we were playing in, uh, I don't know, one of those one of those damn towns. I think it was Adelaide, maybe. And um, and Bruce Springsteen was playing across the. We were playing in this club, and across the way in the Enormo Dome or whatever it was, was uh, Bruce Springsteen. And so um, I still had Nils' number from back in the day. So I. I called him or I texted him and left a message just saying, hey, funny story. I happen to be in Adelaide and we're across the way playing at this this place. He came over. Imagine the look on the Fender guy's face when Niels Lofgren came in and said, hey, I'm buddies with Craig. I mean, it was like, that. how awesome is that? What a cool cat. Yeah. Yeah, that's on. Yeah, there's a lot of funny stories from back in the day. And we'd always see guys like Frank Bellow and John Five and, the yes. occasional English writing. And oh, I remember one, and good. I don't know if we're at this one or not. I think you were, but basically, you know, we do these for the listeners here. We would do these three events where, like all the guys I named, and you and I and a few other players would get on stage and play in front of sales reps and people recording and, you know, nothing fancy, maybe 50 or 100 people in a room. And it was time for Ingrid to play, so they cleared room. Everybody out of the room. Everything was so casual up to that point, right? This like John Cruz and you know Master Builders and some sales reps, Larry Thomas, the owner. And uh, so it's Ingrid time, so we all have to clear the room, which is funny. And then we come back in. You can see the stage; it's very modest. His guitars are up there, and there's a curtain on the left wall. But we all know that that's just a wall, right? And my buddy kind of elbows me. He sees there's boots at the bottom of the curtain. So anybody's <laughs> standing against the wall, waiting to exit, like total spinal tap. And then he appears. <laughs> so amazing. The only thing that would have made it better was fog, but they didn't have fog. Dry ice. And I remember he did his performance. And I think he was just playing to tracks. And he's shredding and it's great and all that. You know, 30 second notes all day long. And at the end, he took his guitar and tossed it like 30 feet to John Cruz, who luckily caught it. (laughs) That's just amazing. Uh, It's just amazing. We interrupt this regularly scheduled gristle infested conversation to give a special shout out to our friends at Fishman Transducers, makers of the Greg Koch signature Fluence Gristle Tone pickup set. Can you dig that? And our friends at Wildwood Guitars of Louisville, Colorado, bringing the heat in the shadow of the Rocky Mountains. Yeah, there were some wild times back in the day. Ingve was always good for, for some stories. I remember this one time in, in Germany. It was like a music mess or something like that. And Ingve and, and all the other Fender guys, we were, we were staying at this hotel. And this is back you know, when the internet was not, was not good. And your only way it, to call home was to, you know, use Skype. And um, you had to go down to the lobby and I'd have I'd be down in the lobby early in the morning so I could talk to, you know, to the fam. And so it's like, I don't know, seven o'clock in the morning. I've, I'm in the, the lobby 
you know, calling home, talking to my wife. And Ingve was there with his wife and his young kid. So here it is, seven o'clock in the morning, and Ingve in full regalia, you know, pirate shirt, leather jacket, hair's a little awry because it is early, you know. And he's running after his hellion child. Ah! And he's like, come here. And they go right by, past the table. And my wife's hearing the sound. And I look up. I was like, oh, hey, Ingve. <laughs> and she's like, what did you just say? And so I proceeded to describe the situation to her. And it was, it was, it was like spinal tap, but like the child care years. <laughs> <laughs> you know, what's funny while well, living in this town, I live in, like I say to people, it feels like witness protection, you know, uh, right. in this small town. But I see that Ingve is playing at the Hobart theater on Friday. <laughs> I don't know if you know, Hobart, Indiana. And I'm like, and there's not much in Hobart, but th apparently there's a theater, and he's on tour, and he's going to play there. So he's going to he's going to scald people's minds. Maybe I'll go. I'm just so intrigued by this. <laughs> oh, I'd, I'd be all about it. <laughs> now you get down this way and play much in well, you, I am to Chicago. I'm going, we're next week. We're doing this thing. We're we're actually going down after we go to Toledo. We're going down to Fort Wayne at Sweetwater, and uh, we're going to do a couple of uh, days of of doing some uh, recording and filming, kind of a live in the studio kind of video thing. And then I'm doing a workshop down there. And then Thursday we go back up and we play in Chicago. And then Friday we come back to Sweetwater and we're doing a thing. That's more of kind of people can pay to be in this recording process as we track a tune and so on and so forth. So we're doing two tunes for that. And then Saturday we go to, uh, we're playing in Evansville, Indiana at a place called Mojo's Boneyard, which is actually a, a cool venue, FYI, in case you're curious. And uh, they got a nice little back room that seats a bunch of people and, you know, they've cultivated a good kind of guitar-oriented uh, clientele that likes to come and see various folk. And then we're going to a place called the Stable Music Hall in um, Bloomington, Illinois, which is also a cool little room. Nice PA. Again, it's it's a bona fide music venue. It isn't like, oh, look, there's music here. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. Well, I was pretty sports on TVs. Exactly. Exactly. So um, we're and then we go home. So it's a nice little, nice little jaunt. So that's our, that's kind of our close. Uh, then we're coming back through in August. We're going to be in. Uh, we're going uh, through to. Uh, we're going to do Chicago and Detroit, and then I think we're going down to Columbus, Ohio, and then over to uh, someplace kind of far east Ohio, and then I work my way down to Tennessee and other things. So starting to get out a little bit more with the band and. You know, I was very, it was kind of interesting. You, you mentioned the sprinter, you know, in Europe, we always go out with the sprinter and, and it's, it's, it's down and dirty. You got your gear in the back. You got the little area for hanging out in the middle and you got your driver and, you know, you put your miles in, but <clears throat> you know, in the States, we don't really have, what's great about Europe, of course, is that, you know, the place is going to feed you. They're going to have a great PA and they're going to put you up and you're going to get guaranteed money versus the door. Whereas here, it's like, they give you no guarantees and you're on your own for all of the above. <laughs> Until you build up a thing, and then it's still that way. But at least you're 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 guaranteed to make some dough after a period of time of doing it long enough. So, you know, we're coming out of COVID here, trying to figure out the best way to travel. And, um, you know, totally, we got the B three player. So it's even if he takes this kind of chopped scenario, we still got the Leslie and 
And of course, I got my gear. And so getting it all in one vehicle is very difficult. But we've we've actually figured it out. So we've got a uh, uh, we've got a Yukon, I think he has, or a Tahoe, one of the two, and then a trailer. And off we'll go. So we can at least that's off my head now. We know how to get from point A to point B <laughs> in one vehicle because taking two vehicles at this point in time with gas being the way it is, it's might as well you know. It's like you're just subsisting. <laughs> you know, the music is the easy part, right? Playing the instrument. Right. That's the easy part. It's it is. getting there. And it doesn't, matter, it doesn't matter what level you're touring, you know, uh, it's it's never easy. Right. Airport check You live for the moments crap. on stage. It, the playing is always yeah. great. It's all the other stuff that's kind of yeah, like, boom, boom, boom. good hangs with good musicians you know if if you have you can enjoy like in the alan parsons group there's like seven of us on stage and we all enjoy each other's company off stage which makes all the difference because otherwise right. there's just too much time off stage right so thank god we uh we still like each other <laughs> yes so i i was curious i was curious about the uh you know, we talked a little bit when you were in town here about, you know, the Nashville thing. Have have you been tempted to kind of do the Nashville thing uh, in lieu of L.A. kind of drying up? Or is it just kind of like what, why at this point with when you have the connections that you do? You know, um, so we sort of already did that. We went to Nashville in 2018 because uh, my wife wanted to get out of L.A. with the schools are a challenge with the daughters. So they go into high school. Then the private school cost, and you still have problems with private schools, and it's just kind of ridiculous, you know. And so we actually moved to Nashville, uh, Brentwood, Tennessee. And um, but my girl, especially my eldest, just did not like school. It was too, uh, as somebody else put it, I didn't say this, but they said, you know, it was like really just super white Christian in a bubble. And my kids are from a diverse cultures, you know, living out in L.A. It's like, you know, we have everything and, and that's a great thing. And so, you know, it's the South and you start to get depressed. So we, we moved back to California and I thought I was off the hook. Hey, don't need to move again because I love California. So and then here. But um, I was excited to make, you know, new connections there. And I'm, I still will. A lot of my L.A. friends live there now. May lose it here, you know, she and a lot of these guys all took off and went there. So it's crazy how many rockers uh, live in Nashville. It's not yes, just the country seems, town. It seems like more are going there on a daily basis. Yeah. So, you know, if I get a little extra dough, maybe I'll, for fun, get an apartment or something there. I don't know. I'm not like the real estate English. <laughs> Two houses are already too much. <laughs> oh, I, I can gear. imagine. I, I got one house. That's enough. Yeah. But um, yeah, it was, it was great seeing you when you're in town. I, I, I was bummed I couldn't go to the gig, but talk a little bit about how the Alan Parson thing is going and, and what the show entails and what the future, and you're going back out on the road pretty soon again. Yes. Yeah, so um, it's interesting, you know, in December and January, we cut a new record. It comes up in July. Uh, so that's exciting. And then we did a, a little three-week run mid-January to uh, whatever, first week of February, some U.S. shows. And then we just came off a tour of three weeks, including a cruise with uh, a lot of great musicians. I think it was called the Cruise to the Edge. 
Uh, yeah, so I just who got was all on that one? Was, was there some fun hangs on that boat? Yeah, I got to see my buddy Walter Eno, Jimmy Keegan, uh, Mike Fortnoy was there. One of my favorite uh, cats on the ship, because <clears throat> you get to see so many different shows. It's like, ooh. It was the guy, Martin Barr, the guitarist from Death Row Tone. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. He was playing a solano in a PRS, and he had the most bitchin' rhythm tone. And what was cool about his gig, he was he did like Aqualung from start to finish, followed, you know, he put, played thick as a brick and then Aqualung. And he had a disclaimer that there's no flute in here. You're going to hear everything but the flute, and we don't care, and this is our interpretation of it. And he was very nice about it. Uh, but it allowed me to enjoy all the cool guitar parts that are in there that might have been a little hidden. It was, it, it was fantastic. His tone was just... Uh, you know, Adrian Ballou was on the ship. We hung a bit. He was great. Shit. You know, King's X canceled. They're one of my favorite bands. I think Ty Tabor broke his pinky or something like that. I had heard. I don't know. Uh, but yeah, it was great. And so, and then when I saw you, we played the Paps Theater. Right. And, uh, you know, it's a wonderful band because Alan's uh, really good at kind of showcasing the whole band. As the show goes on, like I'll sing a song. Alan sings a few songs during the show. There's a lead singer, PJ, who's just got this breathy, ethereal, wonderful voice. And he sings songs like Time and Old and Wise. I mean, people in the audience are crying and they just can't believe the soul that's coming from this guy and how he emotes. And there's a sax player next to me, Todd Cooper, who he's a Nashville guy. And uh, he's got a wonderful voice, sings a couple of Alan songs. The show Dan Tracy, who you met and we hung out with, went guitar show with. He sings a tune, great harmonies, rhythm guitar. We'll do a few harmony guitar parts together, and uh, it's just it's wonderful because the people that watch it, they're like, "Wow, I'm hearing like three part harmonies, but they're doubled or four part, and there's counterpoint and there's stuff going on, and you don't get tired of it because it's not just one singer in the show." So it's, and we have a great lighting director that also works with Todd Rundgren and, you know, it's just, and Alan is such a sweetheart as a, as a band leader and as a boss, for lack of a better word. Uh, he's just, uh, he's a kind English gentleman and, you know, he allows you to really play in the show. There's times where I take a, you know, a few minutes solo and do whatever the hell I want. And that's my moment, you know, and the original guitar player for you guitar players that talk about, you know, and you and I talk about, it's a ridiculous term, underrated or who's the best. You know, a truly underrated guitar player that's not on the radar would be the guitar player Ian Berenson, who did a lot of that original Alan Parsons guitar parts in those studio records. He's fantastic. And he's so musical and every note means something, you know. It's like when you listen to a Cars Elliot Easton solo and you can sing the whole solo and go, that's fantastic. You know, it's such a part of the song. What a concept. <laughs> right, exactly. Man, I tell you what, back in the day, speaking of Elliot Easton, wasn't it fun just playing playing along with that first Cars record especially? It was just so much fun. Yeah. I got to meet Elliot. Uh, we, I did a, a guitar, I don't want to even call it. Uh, it was at the Amp Show. Uh, Lonnie Spector had a panel of guests. It was Joe Bonamassa, Elliot Easton, Eric Steckel, you know this kid? Yeah, yeah. Good guitar yeah, yeah. player. And I was on the panel. There was like five of us or six of us. And uh, Elliot Easton was there. And it was just great to hear those stories. And 
you know. And a lot of us have accomplished some things. And, of course, like Bonamassi, he's done well. But when Elliot Easton talks, we're all kind of, you know, you listen a little. It'd be like Brian May's there. It's like, who cares about anybody else? Fucking Brian May. Right, right. So that was cool. Well, I mean, there was a time, you know, when, you know, when we were younger. The Cars were like the biggest band in the world. I mean, for 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 quite a few years there. I mean, they were just megastars. And, and to your point, it's like his solos were like part, were sing-alongable, sing-alongable, but they were fantastic. They were a key part of the song, you know, you know, shake me up. Any of those songs. It's like you, you knew those solos. Yeah. So I enjoy in Alan's group. I enjoy paying tribute to Ian and playing, you know, certain solos just need to be note for note, you know, changes just nail that fucker, you know, and Alan appreciates that. And some, you know, that you can stray off of your thing and, some of them, it's a little bit of both. And, and you know, I enjoy singing, but I don't consider myself a lead singer. And I don't really want to run a band like Dave Grohl and sing all night. And I'm sure nobody really cares to hear that anyway. So it's nice in the band I get to sing a tune, sing a lot of harmonies. Great. You know, it's fun. And uh, you get to go through the palette of tones and a little bit of everything there. So it's it's a blast. Well, I remember a few years ago when you were in, you were in town with... Uh... I forgot who you were in town with, but you it was like three artists that you were kind of backing up all three, I believe. Yeah, they have this thing called the Rock Pack, and it's led by John Payne, uh, the second singer that replaced John Wetton in Asia. Right, right, right. So John Payne created this thing called the Rock Pack, and it's great. I mean, when we started doing it, I remember the first show I had done, I'm playing Dust in the Wind with Steve Walsh. How often does that happen in your life, right? And then Robin Sander comes up and we're playing three songs, you know, by Cheap Trick. And then Mickey Thomas, we're doing Starship. And I'm like, this is fucking great. Number one, it's great networking. Number two, they're cool guys, you know. And he always has that ongoing. I think the one we did that you came to, it was probably like the cat from Toto, uh, Bobby Kimball, maybe Lou Graham. Lou Graham. And so I've probably done like... 40 shows with Lou Graham, you know, playing all those great songs. <laughs> well, I just remember plugging into your gear and hearing all the different tones. And man, it was a, it was a glorious panoply of delicious tones. Yeah. You know, on the road, I just, uh, rider, uh, JCM 2000 DSL. I go on the clean channel and my pedals do the work and, you know, I don't c completely give away the recipe because I don't want everybody to have the, my tone. <laughs> but as you know, when you plug it, it sounds like you. When I plug it, it sounds like me. If John Five plugged into my rig, it would like him. I can't do that enough. You know, it's like uh, everybody has their own thing. I like to say it's the fingers, not the frets, but the That's frets right. help. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I think it's important, too, for the guitar listener. you got to be able to get on stage in five minutes and rock. And have your shit together and you, you shouldn't need your own gear to do it you know i mean your own guitar i bring my pedal board it's under 50 pounds doesn't charge anybody at the you know the airline i got snake it's color-coded any idiot can figure it out if i don't can't plug it in myself and i got my tones and the tones are you know, it's kind of like anything from an eric johnson clean thing all the way to you know eddie van halen that's kind of of you know depending on what guitar you have uh you can get you know 
a lot of good tones and to be able to push it up in the mix for solos you shouldn't have to rely on the sound man all these obvious things but right right you know for for the kids that haven't done much gigging i think that's important i remember when i first started i mean like i built this pedal board the thing would like almost fall apart on the first gig and cables are coming unplugged and it ends up being this whole distraction that can ruin the whole show right so yeah you have to have yep. your together when it comes to my pedal boards have just always routinely, but I went for a long time not using anything. <clears throat> just plug into the amp and just be done with it. And then I would have, when I started doing a bunch of sessions, I would have this pedal board, but I would have different shit I would put in it. Because you know how it is in doing sessions, especially if you're doing like jingle sessions and shit. And it's like, you know, they start saying stuff like, hey, is there any way that you could make a sound with the guitar that accentuates that syrup coming down the precipice of that stack of piping hot flapjacks? And you're like, yeah, dude, I got the button right here. It's the one that makes the little strobe lights. Oh, wicked. And then you hit that. Like, that's perfect. So I had this pedal board. I was always, you know, putting little things on there just to have little weird esoteric sounds that I'd like use once every never, you know. And, uh, and then there were times where I would only plug, I was convinced that it would only sound good if I would only have like three pedals plugged in and I would just manually plug the other shit in if I really need it. So I remember doing a session actually for uh, one of Willie Porter's records. He was recording it out in upstate New York someplace. And uh, I think Val McCallum was supposed to play on the record and he couldn't do it the last minute. So I get this call to fly out there and do this thing. And, and I get up there, my pedal board's just a shit show. And I remember opening it up and the producer was... Um, uh, was Neil Dorsman who did like Dire Straits and Sting and all these people, and he just looks at my pedal board and goes, and just kind of shakes his head. I was like, "Don't worry, it's going to sound great." <laughs> and we ended up getting along fine, but it was just this. It looked like just a meatloaf of like, chords and unplugged shit. But now I finally got something. You know, to your point, I got something so basic I can put it on the plane. It's not. It's not. Um, you know, uh, over 50 pounds. It's, you know, you plug it into any app. If I get a, like I just did Dallas last weekend and I didn't know what kind of apps they had. I went into with a clean channel of a hot rod DeVille and you know, you, you, you know how to get your sound and you know, Oh yeah, well, and I know what to do with this one. You go bop, 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 and then my pedals take care of the rest and away you go. Right. Yeah. You gotta be able to flop and go quick. <clears throat> That's funny. It reminds me of a story. I, I won't name the, the guy, but, uh, I would play with this artist that he would show up to the gig with a suitcase and then he'd pull his, what's supposed to be a pedal board out of the suitcase, but there's like clothes and underwear and there's hallworks <laughs> with like socks and shit. I'm like, dude, you got to get it together, bro. Right. <laughs> yeah. This, the, the, this food, thing. Foodstuffs, cleaning items, yeah. deodorants. Yeah. The whole nine yards. That's insane. So uh, to further answer your question, uh, so we did three weeks out on the road, and we're going to go back out and do a month uh, in Europe with Alan. We're going to do some Spain shows, uh, Belgium, France, Germany. Uh, Israel was in there, but it's like $80,000 to fly the band over, so we're uh, rescheduling. There's other reasons, but uh, yeah, so we're going to do like a month out in a few weeks from now, so it'll be exciting. So for you, when you're doing something yeah, like the you know, gig, we were locked down for two years. It's nice to be getting out playing. Right, right, right. So I, I was just going to ask if, you know, when you're doing a gig like the Allen thing and you've got these tours headed for, you know, how far are you mapping out what you're going to do? I mean, obviously it's difficult because you don't know 
what the current artist you're working with, you know, how far that thing, they're, how far they're going to want to go. So it's it's diff- difficult to forecast. But if you don't forecast in some way, shape, or form, everyone thinks you're out with this other guy and not available. So how do you kind of juggle all that? Yeah, well, I try to prioritize uh, the Parsons gig. And then, uh, so right now I'm juggling mainly like three or four gigs. And one of them is this Japanese artist. We talked about this when I saw you, Ikiji Izawa. The Japanese fans know him as Achan. Uh, you say his name and nobody knows who he is. And I'm like, he's the most famous artist in Japan, but I would say his name wrong, you know, because I'm just saying it how I would, how you and I would say it. But um, I usually do him in the winter and Jeffrey Marshall, you know, he subs for me on that gig and, and Alan's very comfortable with having Jeff sub for me. So if I go and do that, which, uh, you know, happens usually once a year around the slow time, you know, like November, December, a lot of people want to be home for Thanksgiving and Christmas. Izawa doesn't care about all that. So he just plows right through. So, um, you know, Alan's booked through um, AEG and they they try to give us dates, you know, they'll give us blocks in advance of what they're working on. Like, OK, mid-June to mid-July, we're going to make these things happen. And then they fill in the dates. So I know that between, you know, let's say <clears throat> the end of May and mid-June, I could book Possible Squad and do a couple of shows. Or if uh, John Payne calls me to play with Lou Graham, you know, we can do a one-off fly date. So, you know. I remember being at the 2019 NAMM show, you know, right before COVID. Well, I guess it was 2020, right? January. And running into different players. And I was booked for like 16 months straight. And it all canceled. Like, shit, man, I got like, you know, booked solid. And that's a good feeling, you know. But uh, with COVID, we have to work through it. And I think we all got busy in our studios and did that sort of thing. So. I was able to knock out a record. We were, we did what had to be done. We did what had to be done. Some of us lost our minds more than others. <laughs> well, I didn't have much to lose, so we were good. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I got your record. I haven't listened to it yet, but I have it right here. Aha! You spin the sucker today. I'm back home. A little KMT. We got another one kind of locked and loaded. I got to get that get that rascal out. Well, you know it's. It's interesting, you know, I was talking with somebody, you know, my buddy Woody out in California yesterday. He's like, yeah, we put on a new CD and we hired some publicists, but, you know, it's really not doing anything. And it's like, you know, it's almost like you, you can't look at any kind of record these days as with any kind of expectation other than your, your only real job is to get it to the people that you know are fans. And if you've cultivated, you know, your social media thing and your website with a mailing list, it's like, you know, you're going to at least hopefully reach those people and pay for the thing. Plus, you know, you it's always going to be a source of additional revenue at gigs, even though most of the people get their music digitally. But when they're at a gig, you know, they want you to sign something. So they'll buy the CD and so on and so forth. But, you know, it used to be one of those things. It's like, well, how how can I how can I reach more people? Should I do a deal with this label? And you realize that, you know, at the at the, I hate using that expression, but it's so. At the end of the day, it's like, you know, whatever you're going to do on your own is are, is the people you're going to reach. Has that been your experience as well? It's like you've got you got the people that follow your thing. Your job is to put out music that you love and you know that your crowd's going to dig it. You just got to do your best to reach your people, hopefully get some new people along the way and and be satisfied. Yeah. 
absolutely. You know, back in the day, I, I started my own record label, Marmaduke Records, and I had distribution uh, ties overseas and stuff. And people like David Chastain, the guitar player from Cincinnati, it's kind of the Midwest Mike Varney. He helped me set that stuff up back when I was like 19, 20 years old, you know. So I kind of learned the process of how to do that. And I didn't feel like I needed to do a deal with like Shrapnel Mike Varney, you know, and get $10,000. I can... Back then, I'd sell, you know, 10, 15,000 CDs out of my garage, you know, that many units just on uh, whatever was going on back then. So, you know, obviously, yeah, people don't buy CDs as much. I mean, cars don't have CD players <laughs> and neither do right. computers. So. Computers don't. Yeah, exactly. Oh, you know, it's a little challenging. You know, the thing that I, uh, all I wish is that people will take the time to listen to the music and then decide if they like not you know i try to listen to like yesterday i listened to annie timmons whole cd you know steve i came up with something really say listen to it start to finish like three times josh smith had a cd listen to joe bottom you know i'm trying to air gills these people whoever you know but it's important to listen and uh and to appreciate music and and uh, i think so many people just caught up in looking at their phones and you know, short attention spans. I got back into vinyl years ago. I'm collecting vinyl all the time, listening every day. It's fun. You know, we're old. <laughs> yes, we are. I do love, I do love the vinyl. You know, I'm particularly you know, I susceptible to, to, I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah. I remember talking to uh, a young guitar player. A lot of people know him because of social media. Matias. Uh, Matias Asado. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And I saw him at the baked potato. I recognize him. He probably doesn't know who I am, even though I've done like 35 albums and play with everybody. Doesn't matter. I says to him, I said, man, I really like your plan. You, you know, do you have any music out? No. Uh, you should make a record. Mm, maybe. I don't know. I'm just, it was just so kind of, uh, and I'm not judging him as a person, but just a little blase about, eh, you know, I don't know, maybe. Like, wow, you're a passionate player. You would think that you'd want to get your own music out. You know? Yeah, it's it's an interesting and thing. It's, just, it's a different generation and mindset. And I think these kids these days maybe get a lot more traction from just playing for 50 seconds on a video. And Yeah, maybe. I mean, it's 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 a weird time. Yeah, Mateus put I mean, and his videos are awesome. I mean, there it's like every time I see one, it's like, you know, in that 60 seconds. You know, there is, you know, just a tremendous offering of, you know, kind of contemporary, you know, soul fusion shred guitar, right? Um, and, he, and they just get an incredible amount of, of views. So I would imagine that, you know, maybe someone in that realm, I mean, it's like, you know, you talk to, you know, in a different realm, like, you know, Rick Beato, when, you know, you've got millions of followers on those formats those guys are making a shit ton of money just on this digital content so you know and and, and rick's got like two books available and it's not like even you know it, it's it, but most of his money i mean he sells a lot of those books but he's most it's on these different formats so i think it's just different it's a different different mindset of well why do i even need to do that because i've already making my money doing this again to our to an art state of mind it's like well you got to do a record i mean you've got to prove that you can do a record and, and write your songs and arrange and get sounds and, and then be able to go out and gig those tunes. You know what I mean? But again, it's, that's you know, where, I guess whatever that's where works. I respect. Yeah. 
that's where I respect musicians is uh, based on the legacy of the recordings they leave behind. Right. You know, I mean, if Brian May jammed with you, I, I think he would have a tough time keeping up with you. Does that matter? No. You listen to his records and the music he was written and the tones and the parts and the feel and the orchestration and who gives a fuck what he can do in 30 seconds. It's what he's done in a lifetime. Right. Absolutely. So, and here's another concept. I was talking to uh, my buddy, Alex, who uh, we won't name other names, but basically Chick Corea saw this piano player kid online. He's like the piano, you know, just he saw 60 seconds of just brilliance. So he invited him to come sit in with him. And the bass player at the time was talking to my buddy, Alex. He said, how was he? He goes, he was great for 60 seconds. And then he had nothing to say. And it went like this. Right. Meaning... You know, it's like the game of tennis. And when I was studying with Gene Parker, I read the inner game of tennis talking about flow and being able to flow. Like a guy like Michael Landau, Robin Ford, or yourself, you just flow with solo for, you know, as many bars as you need, as many courses around it. But I think some kids, they're good at showing what they can do in 60 seconds. And I never thought of that until he explained it to me. So the kid was great for 60 seconds, and that was uh, it. So that makes you know, sense, though, doesn't saying. it? Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, well, but you know, I guess in the it's it's interesting. Every time I, you know, I have these chats with folk, and you know, and we always kind of, I always kind of touch base with the idea of the the idea of the internet, and is it bad or is it good for musicianship? And I'd say for guys like us who remember how hard it was to get access to recordings. Like we'd read about one of our heroes in guitar player magazine and they'd list like five, six guys that they were into. You're like, where the, where the hell am I going to find those records? Unless you were one of these real studious people that, you know, would order away for records or something. But if it was something off the beaten track, you know, you just had to wait until you came across it or a friend of a friend said, Hey, you know, like, remember when I got into Albert Lee and he starts mentioning like Jimmy Bryant, I think my first collection of Jimmy Bryant, a buddy of mine gave me a cassette tape, you know? Uh, but nowadays it's like, you know, you read about anybody or you find some, someone will mention someone new to you and you're like, Oh, I wonder who that is. You can find everything you want to know about that individual. Like there's either going to be footage of that person actually playing or someone will have, uh, you know, uploaded some old, vinyl from back of the day or there'll be instructional shit on them you know what I mean? or there'll be transcriptions there's like transcriptions of everything now and so as i like to say there's really no reason to suck but yet in 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 what's interesting to me is like you know if you, you post a little something like you know you're playing a little something and then someone will ask a question where you're like you have access to all the information in the world in your hand on the device you're actually watching this and you can't just do the simple task of trying to figure, I mean, and I get it. A lot of times they're just trying to interact with you and they just want some kind of response. I get all that. And that's all cool. I get that. But, you know, the the whole idea of that you have this incredible device in your hands and, and guys like us, I think, get it because we knew what it was like not to have access to all that stuff. But now people have access to all this stuff and they don't even use it, it seems. You know what I mean? Do you, do you get that feeling? Yeah. Well, there's too much. There's so much coming at them now. And they talk about, you know, attention spans being like seven seconds. And, you know, it's just ridiculous that people don't slow down to take the time to listen to music. They really don't. And, you know, when you have the device in your hand, you're just constantly, I think it's just warping brains a little bit. So 
certain people, I think, uh, of a young generation can really kick ass with it because they're they're sucking up everything and using the right balance of the tools and not getting too much into social media, but using it to promote themselves and learn and all this. But uh, it's kind of numbing, you know. <laughs> what are you going to do? It we got to so. just keep on <laughs> keeping on, Jeffrey. And try not to be old curmudgeons. No, I know. So, uh, you have you listened to any good music lately? Let's say that. Anything new that, that you like that's just been released? Well, you know, it's interesting. I don't think I've listened to anything new in a, <laughs> in a while. I listen to old shit, Jeffrey, all the time. I mean, every now and again, uh, I'll listen to some new stuff. Um, uh but it's weird for me. It's like I, 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 some, I spend more time listening to old stuff than I do new stuff, and um, and, and I don't know why that is. I, I guess uh, you know. I, I guess I'm look. I'm always looking for inspiration in a way that's not um, uh, tainted by contemporariness. I guess for some reason. I don't know. Maybe that's just a character defect on my own. But um, you know, like for instance, like the other day, I get into my. Um, I get into my wife's car, the Subaru, which you had a glorious ride in the other day. And, uh, and I had that old, um, and it does have a CD player in there. And she always listens to the radio, but in the CD player, I have that Eric Clapton record just one night, which was one of my favorite records back in the day. And for some reason I found it like for diddly squat at some used record place. And so it just lives in that car. So anytime I take that car, I start listening to it again. And I realized, well, that's kind of, you know, we were as a fan of like Cream Eric Clapton and having endured the 70s where he just didn't really seem to care about, you know, the instrumental aspect of his uh, his notoriety, if you will. This record came out where he was like, yeah, I'm sick of people talking shit. I got to show him I can play again. And he and he had Albert Lee in the band. And that's how I found out about Albert Lee. I'm like, what the hell is this? Uh, anyway, there was something really special in the way that he played on that record. And so I just got in the mindset of, I wonder if there's any other shit that sounds like that. Cause like right after that, he didn't sound the same. And right before it, he didn't sound the same. So then I found like the entire Japanese tour leading up to, and it's all bootlegs online. So this is like, this is the kind of thing I do. I listen to these old bootlegs and what's fascinating to me is these iconic artists of, you know, of, of yesteryear. Uh, even though their set lists, you know, were were similar, you know, night to night, man, they fucked around with shit. I mean, it was always like tempos would be different. Solos were never the same. You know what I mean? And there was just this this kind of more of this old school, rough and ready aspect of stuff that I really dig. That's so gone now in a lot of ways. You know, everything is so it's got to be like this because the listener is expecting something that's so similar to the record. Whereas back in the day. It was like there was the recorded version, and then that was never going to happen again. The, the 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 live version was going to be different, and it was going to be different every night. So I get stuck in these little kind of reshufflings of of, uh, of of folk, where I'll just kind of go back and listen to a bunch of old bootlegs, and and it's just the weirdest shit that I'll get you know obsessed about, you know, like a little. You know, like a particular tune and how they approach the tune, and then I start doing the tune, and then I'll revamp the tune. So it it really is it's 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 hard for me. But you know, I will come across different things. Um, you know, I enjoyed Mark Latiri's set that he did. Um, you know, down in Dallas, he had those baritone sessions and you know, cool stuff that's funky with a lot of different stuff. Um, you know, it's it's got some different. You know, kind of like you know, 
your stuff in terms of funky fusiony stuff with cool unison patterns and some cool chord changes and stuff like that. So I enjoyed Mark's stuff. I, I heard a couple tunes off Josh's record, and I really I, I dug that. I remember he had played a tune for me in his car, uh, and I just liked the. And he had kind of a. Um, I really dug the horns, and I dug the. Uh, he was using a kind of a Lonnie Mac vibrato sound on his guitar that I thought was cool, and I enjoyed that. I thought that was an interesting, an interesting record as well. Uh, but yeah, it's 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 hard for me. It's for whatever reason, I I don't like to listen to a bunch of new music for just because I'm an old fart, I guess. It was so honest and pure and authentic back then. With uh, it was just a different time. You can just go back and listen to Rolling Stones for, you know. And I do. <laughs> yeah. You can just pick one artist, right? Robin Trower and go, oh, you know. And there was a record uh, I hadn't heard in a while, twice removed from yesterday. And I just, and I always love James Dewar, the singer, you know. And yeah, I just, he's great. I'll just turn over Donny Hathaway, you know, right. in New York. Cornell uh, Dupree. Well, interesting you should mention Trower because, you know, it was interesting for me when I was young because my, my brother got me into Hendrix. My brother was older, uh, 14 years older, and that's how I got into Hendrix records. So I'd listen to his Hendrix. And he had a couple of Trower records. And I remember he had that record uh, from from the Earth Below or something like that. It had uh, Alethea on a couple of other Really cool riffs. And then um, somewhere in high school, one of my guitar teachers was just savage Robert Trower. He's like, well, he's just trying to be a clone of Hendrix. And so I had someone kind of pollute my mind against Trower, but I always liked those riffs and I love that James Dewar's voice. And then, you know, years later, you know, and then Stevie Ray Vaughan came out and it was just like, well, here's a guy that, you know, understands the old blue shit and the Hendrix thing. So it's almost like, yeah, Stevie Ray Vaughan's really the guy. Not that there has to be one or the other, but you know how guitar players are. And Robert Trower was just kind of like, nah. And, and then years later, he did a record with, with Jack Bruce. And a buddy of mine, you know, worked for a record store and he laid, he goes, Hey, I got some records. I thought you might be interested in. And there was a record called, he had done a few records with Jack Bruce, but this one was called seven moons. And I listened to the record and I loved it. And what I loved about Robert Trower's playing and what he continues to do is that it's not really licks. It's just kind of utterances. You know what I mean? It's like, it's, 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 it's within a wheelhouse but it's not like he's just playing licks. He's just really, truly improvising in his wheelhouse with that glorious tone over these cool tunes. And so he's been another one I've gone around and, and listened to a bunch of bootleg stuff. And, you know, there's there's a lot of cool shit in there. Yeah. And he always had the Univibe on. It's like, it sounds so good. Why ever turn it off? Right. <laughs> but he had some other stuff. It's like he would have, he had that, you know, um, he he had something that was kind of a it sounded like a flanger as well that would do that Hendrixy thing, and he had a couple cool things that he would use, and uh, but yeah, the Univibe always sounds so damn good. Oh yeah, but what's interesting? I did a little reading, and then he was talking about how nowadays he never ventures away from either the neck pickup or the four position on his strat. Never moves, which I just thought was wild. But it's weird, you know, when you're strat guys, it's like you're always fucking around with the toggle switch. You know what I mean? It's like, ah, neck for a while. Ah, how about two? Ah, we need that bridge. How about middle? You know what I mean? <laughs> and if you just <laughs> and if you just set it and forget it, it's just kind of a cool. That's that's my thing. There it is. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, Eddie Van Halen. All he needed was the bridge pick on the first five records. So. Right, which was a glorious tone. Yeah. 
Yeah. Lord have mercy. Well, listen, my friend, I've talked to you off enough. Thank you so much for spending some time today. It was great as usual. Great to hear you. Great to hear the stories. And uh, I hope we cross paths soon. This will probably air, FYI, this Thursday uh, in the morning, if I can get it over to my my fellas who take care of all the logistics. And uh, so look for it on Thursday. This Thursday, it's going to drop, as the kids say. (laughs) We're going to be famous on Friday. (laughs) Woo! Frescas all around. You too, my friend. Have a good one. Thanks again. Thanks so much for tuning in to Chewing the Gristle. We certainly do appreciate it. On behalf of Wildwood Guitars of Louisville, Colorado, and our friends at Fishman Transducers, we say, don't be a stranger now. Keep on coming back. We're going to keep on giving her.